Father, we're grateful that you brought us together again on this Lord's Day, and we ask in your kindness and your mercy that you would meet with us in this teaching hour. Uh, Open your word to us that we may see what it is you have to say, uh, even into our our current moment. We pray in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Uh, Charles, it seems hot to me, but maybe it's just, is it the reverb? Do I need to back up some? Is it okay? Okay. Uh, Well, hello. Good morning. Uh, We started last week in a two-week study of Ruth. I I failed to mention last week something about um, Ruth and where Ruth is located now in in the Jewish canon, which I do think is of interest. I I, I meant to mention this, and it's a term you might run across. Um, Ruth is in a collection of four smaller books in the writings that are referred to as the Megalote. Uh, you, you may see that in Bible studies or if you have study Bibles or maybe something mentioned of that in a, in a footnote. Um, megala is the singular term for scroll, and then megalote is um, the term for scrolls. So you have uh, the, these five small scrolls that are, are put together. Let me tell you what these five scrolls are. You have Ruth, um, then comes Song of Solomon, and then you have Ecclesiastes, you have Lamentations, and then you have Esther. So you have those five scrolls that are brought together, and that's actually a post-Talmudic phenomenon that occurred. We're talking probably after 100, 200 A.D. Um, So that's not necessarily the ways in which these five scrolls were initially in the Hebrew canon. There's a lot of debate about how that happened, but why did this occur in the Jewish tradition? And that's because these texts were read liturgically, in conjunction with special feast days in the Jewish calendar. So, for example, Song of Solomon was read at Passover. Uh, Ruth was read during the Festival of Weeks, or Shavuot. Um, Lamentations was on the 9th of Ab. Ecclesiastes was Tabernacles, or Sukkot. And then, many of you will be familiar with this one, Esther was read at Purim. Have any of you been to a Purim or Purim celebration in a synagogue where they read Esther out loud? I think the tradition to this day is whenever Haman's name is mentioned, they have rattlers in the congregation and they boo and hiss. So they sort of rattle and yeah, we, we need to try that. That would be fun. Um, so we have uh, Ruth here is read in conjunction with the high day of Shavuot or the festival of weeks, which is also the beginning of the season of harvest. And that makes sense why Ruth would be in conjunction with the season of, of harvest. The historical significance of the Festival of Weeks, or Shavuot, is uh, the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Um, So Shavuot and Passover are related to one another, I guess on analogy within the Christian tradition to um, Easter and Pentecost. Um, Because Shavuot takes place 50 days after Passover, Pentecost is 50 days after um, Easter, and so these two are related to one another liturgically in uh, the Jewish calendar. Now, uh, that, that's interesting, and I think there's something to be gained from this. And why do I bring it up at the beginning before we hop back into Ruth's story? Because we tried to make the point last week that Ruth, the book, like Ruth, the main character of the story, is a wandering Moabitess of a, of a book. I mean, Ruth shows up at the beginning of, at least in our English Bibles, and there's some rationale for this, I think, even in the language of Ruth, that we have Ruth sort of nestled in between Judges and Samuel, so that Ruth functions as a bridge 
in the history of redemption between the period of the judges then moving into the period of the monarchy. You have these judges that were set up, and, and judges probably isn't the best term for these figures, but they were, they were political leaders, they settled disputes among people, but they were also um, charismatically uh, anointed by the Spirit of God to do particular work, even when they were kind of rascally figures, a la Samson, right? I mean, Samson's not necessarily a guy that you want your daughter telling you that he's, she's dating. Um, but nevertheless, you know, Samson is, is, is a judge of the Lord, and he is anointed by the power of the Holy Spirit to do that task. And then we come to the book of Ruth, and Ruth brings us into this new period. And what's the new period? It's the period of the monarchy. And you know the history of Israel well enough to know that the monarchy is a long and complicated story that began with the United Kingdom that only lasted for, uh, under the reign of, of three kings, Saul, David, and then Solomon. And then after Solomon passed off the scene, his sons come onto the scene, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, and now the kingdom split northern and southern, and Israel's never the same. I mean, that, that's a significant juncture in the history of Israel. And here we have Ruth that br brings us into the monarchy. And at least between Judges and Samuel. And it's telling us something about um, the redemptive purposes of God in history. The fact that God, in his own gracious providential ordering of time, takes what seems to be desperate episodes and then infuses them with his own life so that by the end of the story, you can really only look back and say, how did this happen? Answer, uh, God was at work uh, in the middle of all of this. Is the microphone funny for you all? I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go off. Well, that's cozy, isn't it, now? Okay. Um, so this is, a, this is the, the position of, of Ruth functioning theologically in a way to render for us an ongoing sense of the power and the movement of God in the ordinary course of human affairs. I want to come back to that. I, I mentioned it last week. I want to come back to that today, and hopefully we'll wrap things up. Um, with uh, that particular theological reflection on, on the character and the nature of providence. I, I, um, I, don't, I won't bury my lead, okay? so I'll tell you where we're going to go with this discussion of providence. I, I tell my students at Beeson on somewhat regular basis, especially when we start getting into the nitty-gritty details of the textual history of the Bible. I mean, you know, if you have students sort of come in, and I imagine some of you here as well, you come in with a... Um, I don't, I don't know how to say it. maybe a, a certain understanding of how the Bible came to be. And then all of a sudden, you read a Bart Ehrman book. Anybody read a Bart Ehrman book? Or you read, or you watch some uh, PBS special or History Channel special that starts talking about the Bible and how the Bible came to be. All of a sudden, you begin to realize, oh, this thing's not necessarily as clean as I knew or I thought. You know, the Bible didn't just sort of fall out of heaven uh, like Islam says, the Quran you know, sort of falls out of heaven in a pristine state. I mean, the Bible comes to us in um, a very creaturely medium from beginning to, to the end. It's a human document inspired by God, yes. Authoritative, yes. The very Word of God, yes. I mean, I don't think you can find higher appellatives to describe the Bible than these words, but we don't want to sacrifice with all of those high statements of the Bible the reality that the Bible comes to us through very human means that can be involved in the messiness of history and human affairs. So I tell my students, and I'll tell you all as well, I mean, if, if, if you don't have a robust doctrine of the providence of God, uh, you're in deep trouble. Um, why? Because the providence of God is that understanding that God involves himself 
in the natural course of human affairs, what we would look at and go, that's not all that special. Or that even doesn't seem all that interesting. And yet God is involved in these mundane affairs and maybe not so mundane affairs of human history and progress and movement forward to so order the creation, His creation toward His end. And I tell my students at Beeson, if you don't have a doctrine of the providence of God, when you start wrestling with the Bible, um, then uh, you're, you're uh, in a bad spot. I use more colorful language with them, but I'll be a little bit Okay? So we see Ruth between Judges and Samuel, but we also saw that Ruth is located in the writings, in that third part of our Old Testament, um, right after Proverbs chapter 31. So you have Ruth after, what's Proverbs 31? This is the, the king's mother, Lemuel's mother, and we don't really know who Lemuel is. I mean, something that that's a kind of pet name, uh, maybe that Bathsheba had for Solomon, so maybe this is Bathsheba talking to Solomon, which makes very interesting, actually, that Bathsheba, but anyway, no, he's talking to Solomon about what to look for in, in, a, in a virtuous woman, in a woman who's successful, praiseworthy. Um, and here you have a Moabitess woman. See, that's what's fascinating about the, the, the location of Ruth after Proverbs 31. This, this is not the girl from uh, our community or our suburb. This is the girl from, this is the Moabite girl. Uh, I don't know what's a good analogy here. This is the girl from New York City. You know, we're here in the South. Nothing good can come out of New York City. It's not in Birmingham, Alabama, right? And so this is the girl that we wouldn't expect to be the prime exemplar in the Bible for what a virtuous woman within the religious community of Israel looks like, but that's exactly what the Bible does. And if it sounds kind of offensive, and it's really not offensive to us, but if, it, if you can imagine it being offensive to them, um, it was. And as we'll see in the story today, all throughout Ruth, all through the first three chapters, she is predicated as the Moabitess woman from beginning to end. So Ruth's location both between Judges and Samuel and her location in the writings is a significant point of entry for how we might read this text uh, uh, in interesting ways. Now I've got Englishy people here, so I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be careful right, what I'm going to say because I'm, I'm speaking as lower than an amateur. But um, you know, we just have to be very wary. I don't, I don't, maybe I, I doubt you're a sophisticated group of people, so I doubt these are your instincts. Um, but our tendency to reduce stories to a single maxim. Um, you, you'll find this, maybe some of you have done studies in the parables, and some could argue from a genre perspective that Ruth is a parable. Um, so some of you maybe have done parable studies in small group. Any of you done a small group Bible study on parables at some point in time? Um, I mean, I would say for the majority of the 20th century, that New Testament scholars tended to understand parables as stories with a singular meaning. So for, for you, you read the story, here's Jesus speaking in some sort of image, it's a seed being sown, it's a lost coin, it's this or whatever, whatever the parable, and you read the story and then you whittle it down to one propositional statement that gives you access to what the story is about. And we all, I think, just intuitively recognize that's just not how literature works. Um, literature, and especially narrative, has the potential to be generative of ideas. In other words, you don't come to the end of any classic work of literature and say, now we've got it, right? understand it. I, um, I'll give you an example of this. And I, I, I was with an English, or Jim recently, Palmer, English prof at, uh, at Altadena, and I, 
I was telling him, you know, here I am, 40 years old, making up for a significant lack of education, you know, in my, in my own life. So, I mean, stories that I should have read, you know, when I was 18 and 19, I'm, I'm reading as a 40-year-old. So I, I started into, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a third of the way through George Eliot's Middlemarch. I know, I should have read that late, earlier, but it's, it's, it's brilliant. I, I don't know how to describe it. I mean, it's, it's without doubt one of the best reading experiences I've ever had. Now, you're catching me in the middle of it, so I'll say something very different in six months. But right now, it's one of the best reading experiences I've ever had. The, 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 the character of the language, um, Eliot's ability to penetrate into the psychological dimension of both men and women, um, the ability to bring together various subplots and plots that then resolve themselves, go into crisis again and then resolve again. I mean, here I come to the end of page 245, right? And Sir James Chet- Chetnam or Cheltenham or whatever his name is shows up again and I forgot about him. I had to go back. You know, you ever had to, I had to go back to the first 30 pages. Like, Who is this guy? I forgot about him. And there he is again, back into the play. So, so the, the, the tendency to reduce Eliot's middle march to one, two, three, four propositional statements that now we've got what she was trying to do, you get it. It's absurd, right? It's absurd to do that to great literature, and it's absurd to do that to the Bible. I mean, this is the beauty of reading biblical stories and why I'm so grateful that the Bible comes to us in story from beginning to the end. Because we can never exhaust its potential. There's always a sense in which more can be seen and appreciated when now we begin to read Ruth on the back of Proverbs 31. That's an interesting point of reading. Or between Judges and Samuel. That's an interesting point of reading. Or, and then the list could go on, in conjunction with Eve, in conjunction with Mary in the New Testament. There's multiple points of entry here, and that's what makes narrative, in my mind, so much more interesting than just mere propositional statements. And that's part of the power of the story. So I wanted to get back to the story. I think we left last week um, Ruth on the threshing floor with Boaz. We need to come back to that and get her off soon, lest we get too embarrassed. So let me, let me uh, back up just a little bit of time. Uh, back to chapter 2, Boaz has reached out to Ruth and Naomi. He's, make, he's made his field accessible and available to them for sustenance. It's, 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 an, it's Boaz's kindness. If you remember the operative word that we talked about last week, this is that Hebrew word chesed, uh, which is uh, an important term that makes its way through the book of Ruth. This is Boaz showing chesed, showing kindness, showing loyalty to this family. The extension of his hospitality and his good favor opens up a future and a hope that these two women would not have had otherwise. I mean, again, we talked about the offense of the kind of patriarchal system of the ancient world for modern ears. I would imagine especially for for women in the audience. Um, But the truth of the matter remains, a single woman, a widowed woman in the ancient Near East was in a most vulnerable position. And here Boaz comes onto this scene to protect both Ruth and Naomi. And then chapter 3 is where it all gets interesting, right? And I think, and I mentioned this last week, but I think we will do this story a disservice if we don't recognize that the character of Ruth chapter 3 is meant to be provocative. Right? Uh, one commentator, Sasson and Campbell, says that the storyteller meant to be ambiguous and meant to be provocative. In other words, you start to read Ruth 3 and you get the advice from 
Naomi to Ruth, put some perfume on, get your widow's garb off, get the black off, get your cocktail dress on, head on down to the threshing floor. After Boaz has eaten enough and he's maybe a little, got a little buzz going, uh, he's lying down on the threshing floor, then you go to him and you uncover his feet and you lie down with him. And, and there's just no way of getting away from it. I mean, to lie down in the Old Testament was meant to be provocative. Um, so I, I don't know how best to, it's, it's not Lady Chatterley's Lover. It's not Fifty Shades of Grey. I mean, I, I've not read that, but it's not, not, that's not what's going on here. Um, but the scene is marked by a certain kind of provocative sexual tension. You know, eyebrows are meant to be raised. Now, I should say very clearly, I don't think there's nothing in the text to indicate that anything untoward happened on the threshing floor that night. In other words, I don't think it turns into an HBO or Showtime moment. Um, but again, we're left with something rather provocative, and Ruth is making herself available to Boaz. And Ruth puts herself in a very vulnerable position when she does that. As one commentator said, Ruth is on a risque and a risky mission. And if you notice, I don't know if you have Bibles, but phones or something, if you notice in, chap- in verse 14 of chapter 3, Boaz gets that this is risque and risky as well. Listen to what Boaz says. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. Isn't that a great... Still people get too groggy. Was that, Ru- was that Ruth leaving the, the threshing floor? And, and, and this, this is what Boaz says, so that he says this, no one must know that a woman came to me on the threshing floor. Right. Now, so even Boaz recognizes this scene is provocative. Ruth made herself vulnerable. This is risky. This is risque. But by this point in the story, we can almost anticipate without question what Boaz is going to do. Because it's the character of Boaz on display. You know, Aristotle said that character is plot. Want to know what someone's character is like? Look at the implotment of their lives, the stability of their lives over time. Well, Boaz has a certain kind of stability. He's proven himself to be a righteous, to be a gracious, to be a kind man. He looks out for the needy. He looks out for the poor. He blesses the poor in chapter 2 on the way to the threshing floor. He blesses them. They bless him back. I mean, this is Boaz's character on display, and he does what we expect him to do. He extends himself toward Ruth in kindness, with that chesed, with loyalty, hospitality, with care and with concern, and we expect it. In chapter three, verse nine, uh, <laughs> and I, it, 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 my retelling of it is not as good as reading it. I mean, this is here, here's Ruth in the middle of the night. Something startled the man, and he turned. I mean, this has to be funny. And there was a woman lying at his feet, exclamation point, it has in my my translation. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now, there's a lot to talk about this sort of guardian redeemer notion. Um, The Hebrew term is goel. And if you read study Bibles, or you've maybe done a study in Ruth before, some will make an association between what what, uh, Boaz does and leverite or lever marriages that you see in the book of Leviticus, where a dead man's brother is by law required to take his widow so that his seed will continue to be born into the future. 
so that that child who is produced from the widow of the dead brother is not the living brother's child, it's the dead brother's child that continues on. Um, I, I don't, there's a lot of similarities between the Goel kinsman-redeemer notion and the Leverite marriages that we read about in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but I don't think that's what's going on here. In other words, Boaz is not bound by law to do what he's doing. In other words, there's a real sense in which Ruth's mission could have failed. There's counterfactual evidence here that could have gone the other way and Boaz could have said, I'm not going to do that and I'm not bound to do that. Because there was risk involved for a man of stability and nobility known at the city gates like Boaz was to take a Moabitess wife. That's, it's a risk. We get that sense. So, so Boaz did not have to act this way toward Ruth, but he extends himself to her in kindness and in loyalty. And then he says something rather beautiful. He says, The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. So, I mean, he must have been a man of some age. And here's a younger woman that comes along, and he's like, well, you know, I was joking with somebody that, you know, you know what it's like to be at the, this is bad, but, um, but to, to, to be at the mall um, or in some public setting, and you see an attractive woman with a, I don't know, not so attractive guy, and you go, how in the world did that happen? Um, <laughs> And, and, until it dawned on me that that's me. I'm the guy at the mall. Like, like, <laughs> I, I, this, is, this, this is what happens with, uh, with Boaz, right? I mean, it's, this, this, is a, this doesn't seem right, and he recognizes it. She's offering an act of kindness to him as well. I mean, there's something beautifully romantic about this here that's going on. Um, and so now he recognizes her. He says, I will spread my garment over you, which is a, a euphemism for marriage. I will cover you and protect you. Isn't that the power of the metaphor? I'm going to cover you with my garment. I'm going to protect you. You're going to hide under the shelter of my wing. So now Boaz takes her, and he's now his redeemer. Verse, chapter 3, verse 11. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all that you ask. Because, and, and here's a great, here's the line from Proverbs 31, verse 10. Because all the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. They know who you are. You're a fine woman. And she stays for the night. There, on the threshing floor. Again, this is itself is an act of hospitality to protect Ruth from, we can guess, from slander. So let's not lose the romance here. It's romantic. But what's a private scene in chapter 3 turns into a public scene in chapter 4. Now, Boaz is going public with his relationship with Ruth. And what happens here? Well, you, you know the story. There's somebody who's closer in relation so he actually has um, priority to Ruth. And uh, one, one commentator named Nielsen says that this was a um, master stroke of dramatic irony from uh, Boaz. What does Boaz do? He, he goes to this, the man in the city gate where all the negotiations took place publicly. And he says, um, you know, Naomi has come back, Elimelech, her husband, has died, and you have the right to her land, to her um, to, her, uh, to, the, to what's been left in the, in the property and the inheritance of, of Elimelech and that family. And what does the man say? Sure, I'll take it. And then uh, Boaz says, oh, and by the way, uh, a Moabitess woman comes along with the deal. You've got to marry her too. And <laughs> what does the relation say then? Uh, no, thank you. Um, I'll pass. Why? Well, because he recognized that the offspring 
would not be his offspring. It would be the offspring of Elimelech and Naomi, right? And so whatever he was to gain in the deal from a property standpoint really wasn't his on final analysis. And when he saw that that's the part of the deal, he says, I'll, I'll back out. It, I mean, Boaz played it beautifully. I mean, it was a beautiful act of negotiation. And so then the guy says, I'm out. And now Boaz makes the statement in front of everyone. Um, I'm taking this woman this Moabitess woman to be my wife, and they live happily ever after. Right. Let, let me read to you how, how uh, Ruth ends. Um, verse 9, Then Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have brought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Mahlon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Mahlon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. I mean, so this is a beautiful thing here. In other words, this is not to the advantage of Boaz. You have to recognize that. That property will not be his long term. It's going to be Obed's property in the future, not uh, Boaz's property. This is the property that's still within the lineage of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. Today you are witnesses, he says. And then the elders and all the people in the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah. And now we're beginning to get a sense here of what's going on. What do you mean, Rachel and Leah? Well, they're the two women that built up the whole family of Israel. What a blessing. In other words, may the fruit of your womb, Moabite woman, be the means by which God will build up the family of Israel just like he did with Rachel and Leah with the patriarchs back in the day. And that's exactly what God does. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive and she gave birth to a son. And now here's uh, where we round off from chapter 1. The women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. And here's how the, how the narrative ends. Beautiful. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. And the women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and he was the father of David. And that's something. In other words, not Ruth holding the baby at the end of the narrative. It's Naomi holding the baby at the end of the narrative. And what's the blessing that comes from the women of the city? Do you remember what happened to Naomi? Naomi goes away. Her name means pleasantness in the Bible. She comes back and the women of the city are like, are you Naomi that left? And what does she say? Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara. Call me bitter woman. Bitterness. Not pleasantness, but bitterness because I've lost everything. I've lost my husband, and more importantly, really, I've lost my children. I don't have any offspring. Um, and this taps into a major narrative, and, and this is, I mean, monographs, books have been written on this, this theme throughout the Old Testament of women, Sarah could not have a child. Rachel was barren for a long time. Hannah could not have a child. Isaiah chapter 54, verse 1, Rejoice, O barren woman, you who could not have, have any offspring. I mean, this, is, this taps into the very drama of the Old Testament itself. Where do seed and offspring and the promise of Zion or Israel's future come from? Answer, only from the intervening providential work of God in Israel's midst. No one steps back and goes with these narratives. That's the way in which it should have unfolded. 
In the normal fair course of things, it should have been just like this. Cause A leads to effect B. There's children, and then it keeps going on. We all stand back from the Sarah Abraham story, and we go, wow, how did that happen? We stand back from the Ruth and Naomi story and go, wow, how could Naomi in her old age have a child again? Now, how in the world could Hannah, the barren woman, now have a son named Eli? How could this happen? Answer, it's the intervening work and grace of God on behalf of his people. And in these microcosm of stories, in these small narratives, God is saying something grand about the way in which he works in the world. How does God work in the world redemptively? By turning things upside down. By um, paradox. By great things being made small. And by small things like a Moabitess woman, a foreign woman being made great, whose name is now even ensconced in the New Testament in the history and the genealogy of Jesus himself. Not to mention the fact that you know who Boaz's mother was? Yeah, well, can you imagine the family reunions? Um, or, or, or the high school reunions. Boaz, what exactly did your mom do for a living? She was a prostitute uh, back in Canaan. Rahab's, Boaz's mom, that's something, right? So out of these sort of ignominious situations arise the beauty of God's redemptive movement in the world. And it's what Paul, I think, says in 1 Corinthians 1. The wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. I mean, the world looks at that and goes, that's just foolish. But the foolishness of, 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 of God, of, of our own understanding, is the wisdom of God on display. Because you have to step back at the end of a story like Ruth, at the end of the history of Israel, at the end of the story of Jesus of Nazareth. You have to step back and say, only God could have devised a story like that. And one other thing to say quickly, and then, I don't know if we have time for Q&A, about this text, and I mentioned it last week and I'll close again here, is the power of providence in our understanding of the Christian life. God is involved in the details of our lives, the mundane details of our lives. And I have to tell you, I would have said something like that in my 20s when I was all hyped up on John Calvin and Reformed theology. And I would have, I mean, I just, I would have just beat drums on this and, and said it with, with an enormous amount of sincerity. But now there's a little life lived, a little suffering here or there, or disappointment, discouragement. Things didn't quite go the way they should have gone, and X didn't lead to Y, and, all, all, and you all know it. And here you go, and you look at this, and you say, and God's involved in that? Um, I mean, this is... Uh, I've been reading a book on this by, by a philosopher from St. Louis University, Eleanor Stump. She's not easy to read, but this is a rather profound woman on the problem of suffering and the relationship of suffering to narrative. And this is what Eleanor Stump says. You know, we need to be very careful. Number one, we need to be able to give some account of how suffering can be in the world, given the fact that God is in control and sovereign. But we also need to be very careful that in these generalized accounts of providence and suffering, that we don't give localized accounts and in individual stories. I think that's very, very good advice. There's one thing to say, this is how God can be loving and powerful, and there still be suffering in the world. That's one thing to say. Even if there's going to be an enormous amount of mystery in that, and at the end of the day, it will never be satisfying intellectually to any of us, all right, on final analysis in this world. But we want to affirm something like that has to be the case. A story like Ruth, um, a book like Job, 
of the story of Abraham. The narratives in the Bible are riddled with this kind of dynamic intention. Um, but she goes on to say, but be very careful about giving narrative accounts or storied accounts or explanations for individual stories that arise in your neighborhoods or in your churches. And it's one thing to say how God can do this in, in a macro level. It's another thing. Enormous amounts of modesty need to be granted when we talk about the small areas of our lives, our individual and privatized suffering. We won't always have a rationale and a reason for why it happens. That's a very hard thing. I don't know about you. For me, that's a very hard pill to swallow. It's a hard pill to swallow because I want to know why. I want to know why this happens so that even if it's a positive outcome, I just, I, it'll give me some sense. And, and, and this side of eternity, we probably won't get the majority of our why questions answered. But what we are promised, I think, in the Bible, is that in the confusion of these providential moments of our lives where we can't put the pieces together, Elimelech and Kilian and Mahalan, they're dead. They're gone. And they're not coming back. I mean, that is a confusing moment in the life of Naomi. That the, and the pieces can't all be put together then. But there's a sense of trust that Ruth leads us to to say, but listen, God is present and involved and operative in all of those affairs of life, even if you can't put the pieces together and give a genetic answer for why A led to B. Um, I, I don't know if that's encouraging to you or not. Some of this, there's a double-edged sword to this, I will admit to it. Um, you know the old joke about, you know, what, what did the Westland or the Methodist say when he fell down the stairs? The, the, the Armenian and the Westland said, I better watch my, my step. And you know what the Calvinist, the Reformed person says when, when he or she falls down the stairs? Whew, glad that's over with. Right? It's, yes. it's a bad theology. Uh, um, I, mean, so I don't know if this brings any comfort to you at all, um, but the recognition that God is involved in our lives, ordering them toward his end for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. Um, I, I don't know what to say, but in our moments of suffering and confusion, we must hold on to that. And quite frankly, there are times that the psalmists are right when that's all you're going to have is that buoy to hold on to. I don't understand. I can't figure it out. I'm rather angry about it all. But I'm going to hold on to this buoy because if I don't hold on to this buoy, that God, the creator of the world, the redeemer of humanity, the one who sits on his throne, never surprised by any event of human history, is involved in this particular moment as well, even if I don't understand why and can't put all the pieces together. Um, that's, I think, a robust account of providence that we need to hold on to that buoy uh, in the storms of life that really we've seen and experienced and we will taste again, right? I don't know. What time is it? Oh, we got no time for questions. Uh, well, providence at work. That, that was a smiling providence. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for these dear friends. And um, Lord, we don't want to talk about these things in a glib way. This is not a glib conversation. These are our lives. The only, the only lives we know. And these are our relationships that fill us with joy, but disappoint us and hurt us. These are the moments that we live in, Lord. The deep end of the pool where we try to tread water. And a book like Ruth, and all of its power and beauty and romance, it's a, it's a lifeline to us, Lord, to remind us that even when it's not clearly discernible and understandable, you are involved in our lives and have not lost track of the plot, even when we have. 
So give us that hope, Lord, that you are kind and you're good, even, even, Lord, when we feel like we're drowning. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.